You can now hear Movie Heaven Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favourite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favourite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please, leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both freelance filmmakers and movie enthusiasts that enjoy talking about the good and bad of directors' work. And uh, I don't know about you, Simon, but I often feel in these uh, feature-length conversations that we have uh, about many of these topics, we, we never end up really... Uh, you know, we sort of scratch the surface and, and end up finding that there's many aspects that we don't talk about and we forget to mention and, you, you know, we don't always dig into everything. And I kind of feel that t- tonight's director is going to be no uh, exception to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to to go through a director's entire body of work, you know, for some could be very quick and others it could take you know multiple multiple podcasts yeah you know you could spend you could spend a year on a on one director's filmography yes and and some podcasts do so so fair enough but i i think i think one of the reasons being is it, it, it is such a huge topic but at the same time is the the industry itself um certainly from a creative and above the line um, point of view is actually quite a small industry so so what you end up finding is you, you know you end up cross-referencing <laughs> so many you know <laughs> actors and directors and producers and writers and different movies just because that's that's the nature of the industry and uh, I think that's probably why uh, why I always end up feeling that way is just because it's like everything links and <laughs> that also then transcends to all the other medium surrounding it as well but uh but there you go it's but it's all good fun <laughs> well i mean tonight's director is somebody who not only has been an influence on me on the big screen but also behind the scenes uh, right and for, for people to know who uh, haven't read the uh, title of the uh, episode uh we're talking about terry gilliam now yes. when i say he influenced me behind the scenes um that was because um i attended a film school called panico and terry gilliam was one of the sponsors of it uh it was a, like a charity that was run by uh julian and bob doyle who were both uh crew who'd worked with uh terry gilliam and the the monty python team from their very first film uh holy grail and all the way up to sort of uh, 
for Terry Gilliam, Brazil, and with Terry Jones, it was uh, Wind in the Willows. Right, yes. So um, they had, you know, worked alongside him for such a long time. So when they set the school up, um, they asked him, you know, asked the uh, him and um, Terry Jones to both be like, um, I, I say sponsors, but I mean, what's the word? I mean, um, benefactors? Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They, it, they endorsed the course. Yeah. 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 Um, and when I was studying there, we we actually um, uh, Terry Jones would come in once in a while because uh, his son, um, I think it's Bill Jones, because he had a company called Bill and Ben, and so it's either Bill Jones or Ben Jones. It's one of the two. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> We're talking like nearly 20 years ago when I did the wow. course. And, um, but yes, um, you know, and Terry Gilliam was always uh, one of those directors you would see around town. You know, he his base of operations is London. So, you know, he was one of those guys that you would actually see on the street. And I've, I've seen him many times and... Uh, never had the balls to go up and and talk to him, but you know, it, it wasn't. I guess I'm just sort of very polite like that. That uh, if I saw somebody in the street that I recognise, uh, I would give him the nod, or you know, or you know, just let him be. <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be a fan. Yeah, I wouldn't be a fanboy and run over. No, I, I agree. I, I find the sa- the same thing very difficult i mean when i talk to loads of people sort of in my day job and they they, they can't believe that i don't sort of you, you know with my sort of bafta world stuff that i don't go over and sort of you know talk to people and get selfies with them and all this sort of thing and i say you know that there's kind of a, a professional code of conduct that we're supposed to follow so and, and also when you're really close to something and want it that badly you don't want to mess it up do yeah. you so yeah uh, yeah <laughs> But but uh, is that course still running? No, it's not running anymore. Um, it what happened was they 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 Julian and um, Bob ran it for as long as they could, and then it got taken over by the London Film Academy, and then they sort of ran right. it for a while, and then I think they just sort of absorbed it into their their course anyway and for those who don't know what panico in uh, panico was like a crash course in filmmaking so uh what they would do is that julian and bob would run the majority of the courses but they would bring in uh professionals from the industry to talk about certain fields so you'd have um you know your script writer would come in talk about script the dop would talk about camera um, I actually had got my hands on a flatbed editing system and we had an editor there and we actually were just syncing up brushes and we had like uh, two pieces of coursework. One was to shoot on a Super 8 camera, you know, one a, a scene in one continuous shot. And then also we did a day of uh, of coming up with like a one scene that we could shoot within the premises and it would be like a team of two, so the one of us would be a director, one of us would be 
I don't know, working the camera or, or, or supervising the camera because we had a, a, a professional DOP there shooting it. And the rest of us, rest of the class would then fill in the roles as crew members. And so we'd swap around and do that all day. And that was a sort of a, a good way of uh, learning about set etiquette, you know, what people did on the set and all that kind of stuff. So it was a crash course. I mean, you couldn't come out of that course saying, oh, I'm a DOP or I'm a director. Uh, so, but it was it was a hell of a, you know, a first step for that kind of world. And what was great about Panico was that uh, they had like the club night. So this was before you could find work online. You'd go in there and they had a board with all these jobs listed on it. And, you know, you'd write down the details and you phone people up and it's like, oh, I need a runner for tomorrow. Or, and also people would come in, you know, uh, who are members and they'd be like, oh, does anybody want to be a runner on my film? We're shooting tomorrow. And you go, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And that's how I met a lot of the guys uh, who, who were at Panico was, you know, by working with them on set. And so that was, you know, that was good until sort of shooting people came along and then that the whole sort of uh, club night wasn't needed anymore because you could just find the work online. You didn't need to, to go in and have a look at the notice board, which is a shame, really, because, you know, it was a great it was a great night, you know, because you go there drinking, catch up with people. And then afterwards, you'd, you know, you go out and being in the center of Soho you know plenty of bars and stuff yeah yeah i know quite a few people who did that course actually um you know you're not you're not the only one i know okay. um i mean alex who we've had as a guest mm. on the uh, on the podcast before is did the panico course and so did my uh, my good friend tyrone stewart so oh, okay. um oh, right. and, and you know a, a lot of people that uh, that he knows so yeah it's 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 got a good reputation i know uh andrew david clark through um through panico that's how, how right. we met and um like yeah, i it was, said it's a small yeah. industry <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world indeed <laughs> <laughs> you know and as i said he was a big influence for me on the screen um one of the very first films I saw was Time Bandits, which um, I saw on VHS. And then after that, um, well, after that, then I got introduced to sort of the Monty Python films. Um, couldn't watch Life of Brian because that was blasphemous. Ah, yes, it was a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, um, as a teenager, I had recorded it off TV. And when my mum found out I had done that, I was banned from watching it. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yes, uh, I have to admit, for me, um, uh, you know, the early memories, definitely Time Bandits, I have huge fondness for. Um, a lot of his, a lot of his, like his Monty Python stuff, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really get into that until much later when I was at film school um, and I studied him a bit more because uh, I have to admit growing up I, I, I guess my I guess my dad wasn't really into the whole Monty Python thing so in terms of comedy growing up I tended to watch it was you know all sort of Blackadder, um, Faulty Towers, Bottom, uh, you, you know, only fools and horses, stuff like that. And, um, I didn't, when I, when I came to film school, it was quite weird because obviously that was in the U S and all the, 
American guys were always referencing everything to do with Monty Python. And I didn't actually know it at the time because I hadn't really sort of grown up on that. So it was something, it was weird. I sort of discovered that, that side of um, Terry Gilliam much later. Uh, but as I said, for me, as a kid, it was always Time Bandits was that touchstone film um, of his, which, which you know, I have huge fondness for even even today still, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I never, I'm like you, I never really watched the TV series. I mean, I know certain sketches, I mean, the famous sketches and stuff. And uh, I have seen, and now for something completely different, which was when they took those famous sketches and they f uh, filmed them again you know for to, to have as a cinematic presentation uh but as a kid I got to see holy grail quite a bit because holy yeah. grail was kind of inoffensive in a weird kind of way even though <laughs> the, the the whole bit with the, the 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 blood and gore well not gore but the the comic blood with the black knight it's only a scratch yes yeah. <laughs> come back here i'll nut you <laughs> <laughs> yeah no absolutely I mean, and, yeah. and of course very quotable <laughs> yeah yeah as I, I as i became older and uh i was at university of course a a film that we're going to talk about later came out and uh, i got to see that in the cinema and that was part of uh gilliam's sort of uh sort of re-emergence because after um baron Muchausen, uh he was kind of you know, he was, I guess, a kind of a bit of a leper. He's, he was what Mel Gibson was before he's kind of had his comeback now with uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Um, you know, they the studios didn't want to know him, but then he got the Fisher King and he had a, a bit of a renaissance. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, he, he really is. He's one of those, you know, we talk on these shows, we talk about lots of different types of director. And, you, you know, that the term visionary is, is definitely something that applies to Terry Gilliam, I think. he's he, he is, you know, quite, he does have a sort of unique stamp on most of his films. Oh, definitely. You You know you're watching a Terry Gilliam film. Uh, he he's yes. one of those few directors that um, you you only have to like watch a few seconds to know that ah oh, this is a Terry Gilliam film. Uh, no matter what he's doing, there's there's a certain style to it, a certain look, and um, yeah, it's just um, it's such I I I am such a big fan of his work. Oh, so I I want to I have to sort of make this admission though there there was one point when i was really pissed off with him oh right okay so so cast your back mind back to uh must have been about uh must have been about 99 when uh the uk film council was brought into fruition there had been another funding board before it and the UK Film Council had come along and their remit was to help produce new and exciting British cinema. And we're like, okay, that's cool, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make... I was new, I wanted to make exciting cinema. And then I found out they were putting money into uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And I'm like, why are they putting money into a Terry Gilliam film? <laughs> yes. can't, he, can't he just go to Hollywood? 
you know, he's a he's a big time director. He doesn't need to be taking money that should be going to, you know, us sort of directors, up and coming directors, and uh, not not to sound a bit like a shooting people post, but um, that's how I felt. And then of course I saw uh, Lost in La Mancha, and it kind of uh, then sort of I, I forgave them a bit. Well, I, I forget them uh, a yes. lot, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was there was there was one time where I was I, he did kind of fall out of favour with me a bit because it was like it, it I think it was an eye opener as well is that if if like a if that if a body like the UK Film Council is embracing a well known director like Terry Gilliam, then somebody who has no track record, no chances has no chance with them and it was kind of sobering yes and as we've seen now with um the uh the bfi it's the same old shtick you know they they're yeah. just putting money into you know established things there it's a lot of co-productions going on and as much as they try and do the sort of uh, microwave scheme um it's still yeah. kind of ticking boxes and and not making oh, yeah. that that great a cinema to the truth yeah well i mean it, it you know w- without without wanting to get too negative about everything but like like my comment at the beginning about it being a, a small industry mm. uh it, it is and that's sadly the way it, it, it's always been and the way it seems to be going um you know it is risky it is a risky business we're talking about you know, lots of money involved and, you know, something that's very random and subjective. So, uh, you, you know, a lot of places like to play it safe, but, uh, you know, that's no reason for us not to do it. Right. <laughs> try, <laughs> well, try, yes. try, try to bring it back on a positive. Here. Yes, but, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, one of the things, one of the things I think, you know, I've always kind of admired about Terry Gilliam, uh, particularly when I've heard him interviewed and, and, and and that sort of thing is the fact that, um, you know, he, he is a director that, uh, you know, in the true word of a director, you know, likes to maintain control of his projects and, and have final cut and, you know, not, you know, fight nail and tooth to actually protect his vision. Um, and, you know, obviously he's been quite controversial over the years with this whole thing, which I'm sure we'll get into on, on some of the picks. But, mm. um, uh, y- y- you know, I-, I have to kind of admire that um, about him. And obviously, you know, he 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 um, was one of the people that gave Quentin Tarantino some of his best advice back when Quentin was doing the whole Sundance um, thing. And he was he was aligned to Terry Gilliam and um you know, he, he always cites that story about, you know, Terry Gilliam had such vision, such unique vision. And, you know, how does he achieve that vision? You know, thinking it was like some sort of magic, mystical type of thing. And, you know, Terry Gilliam just told him, you know, just believe in your vision and surround yourself with the people to help you create it. And, uh, you, you know, and, and he spoke obviously very highly of um, the script for, uh, Reservoir Dogs um, and stuff like that. Hence, why he gets a thank you in the credits and all that sort of thing. So, um, so good on him, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as as the story goes, that I've well, that uh, Tarantino tells is that um, he when he was there at Sundance 
doing the course uh they had one lot he had one sh- one lot of shooters who were like really negative about his work it's like yes. why are you filming it like this why are you doing that that's not the way you do it and then there was like a shift change where terry gilliam and some other directors as well who came in to do the co- you know to teach the course and Terry Gilliam certainly was like, oh no, this is great. I love the way you've done this and the way you've done that. And I think that just, it did bolster uh, Tarantino to just sort of say, well, I will, you know, I can shoot it my own way and not worry about, you know, what one guy says or one group of people say. Because it's quite, yeah. I mean, it's, this is a thing when it's a creative uh, endeavor that, uh, a lot of the times people can pitch in with their ideas and you have to be quite strong or very uh, good or di- be very diplomatic to sort of, you know, get your uh, vision on screen. I mean, sometimes, I mean, there's there's always compromise because there's never enough days, uh, sorry, there's never enough hours in a day to get a lot of this stuff done. But you, a lot of the time you have to fight battles to, you know, to secure your vision. And that's one thing that Gilliam very much has done. And sometimes he's won and sometimes he's lost. Yes. Yes. He's, he has had an up and down career on that uh, with that. And, and obviously yeah. has been quite outspoken, spoken about most of it, which is, uh, which is always good. Um, you know, like, like I said at the beginning about how we can never cover everything, but there is plenty of, uh, further reading viewing and listening out there should people want to delve more into it uh he certainly has got lots of uh, interviews and sound bites etc out there for all to or to see and hear you know <laughs> exactly exactly so um i think we'll we'll move on to our picks now uh i'd like to go first oh and, sure okay and i think it's probably best for me to go first because the the film i pick kind of feeds into what you've picked and so i think you're absolutely right yeah yes so it's better to uh start off with my pick first and then we will move into your pick i'm more than happy with that no problem at all (laughs) (laughs) in fact i'm almost relieved i feel like like a weight's been taken off my shoulders all of a sudden (laughs) well Uh, okay the the film i picked um I saw uh, when I was a kid. It was uh, it was shown to me by my cousin on VHS, and this was my first experience of seeing a film with a down ending. Yes. And the film I picked is Brazil, but it's not really. As a kid, it it was it, it sort of shook my world up a bit to think that the hero doesn't go, get away with the heroine. But as an adult, I think he it's not a, a downer ending. It's actually a happy ending because in a dystopian future like that where the government controls everything, the, the only way you can escape is into insanity. And that's what he does. He, is, he escapes them completely. He escapes into the world of his mind, which is set up so beautifully throughout the film. So if... Uh, you don't know what the story of Brazil is. Uh, the, I'll, I'll just recap it. Um, so it's about this guy called Sam Lowry, who um, who has an active fantasy life. In his dreams, 
he sees himself as a winged warrior who um, who's in love with this beautiful blonde woman who floats and but in his in his real life he's just a clerk and that's all he wants to be he just he wants to be a cog in the machine he doesn't want anybody to notice him uh, but for a series of events uh, in to do with a, a tuttle and a buttle uh, uh, yeah. he gets drawn into this world the fact that he finds his dream girl that he sees the woman of his dreams and he you know he pursues her but to, to do that he has to get in more into the system and we see how crazy it is and how you know how how a political system like that can get so overblown and has to feed itself to keep itself going it is it's like a snake that's eating its own tail the whole idea that um criminals if if you're arrested for a crime that you have to pay for your own imprisonment you know there's bills to pay and you know you have to take out insurance and this is just one of the creepy things about this story is the whole you know you know you have to pay for the electrical cost of your own torture and you know if you have to be incarcerated you've got to pay for uh, uh, just a, a horrible idea and uh but he is able to escape this into his world of imagination and um it's a it's a film that in some ways is is kind of um it's it's one of those post films after blade runner that you can see they took a lot of influence from it's very industrial um i mean there's no flying cars or anything but um mm -hmm. it has that sort of very dirty um future but it's very british there's a bit where he's um he's littering that the, he has these papers that are flying everywhere and this woman goes pick it up pick it up you're making a mess and there's just this one shot that she's got this little dog with a like a cross on its ass <laughs> you know, some, some sticky tape or something and a cross over its ass so it can't shit anywhere and it's just that kind of i know it sort of sums up the um i know british mentality i mean it's called brazil but it doesn't take place in brazil i don't think i mean it's just the no it's the song it's the song which um have you ever listened to the soundtrack yes so you know you've heard the kate bush version of brazil then that she does oh Which, no is, is, is there a yes. different version okay yes, I, I didn't well there's there's the there's the the version that opens the the the, the film you know du, 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 du. and yeah, yeah very much that whole song is brought into the soundtrack by michael Kamen, um who he said uh, I remember seeing an interview with him saying that, you know, at first he thought this was quite a, a nice little uh, tune, but then it just fed itself into the film completely and he just fell in love with it. I mean, just, I mean, the music in it is, 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 is great. It just, how it sort of sells, especially some of the shots and stuff, the whole bit when they're going through the clerk's office of all those people walking around and you've got that it speeds up until it sort of stops and it's just it's so beautifully done and um but yes there was a version recorded by kate bush that they didn't use in the film which, ah yes uh, actually uh, on the soundtrack 
there's a there's a bit at the end where Terry Gilliam talks about it, and it was a case of uh, they just couldn't find a place to fit in the film. I mean, there was quite a few things that got, um, you know, that was conceptualised and was shot but was never used. I mean, there was right. a scene with the whole with eyeballs. Eyeballs, yes, yes, I've seen that in the um, the, the Battle for Brazil. Uh, documentary there's a bit about that isn't there yeah yes. which was all shot but never used yeah <laughs> well why i brought panico up at the, at the beginning as well was because uh julian doyle was the second unit director so he shot all the puppets he was also the editor as well and the, the thing you always said about uh, gilliam was that um he was great with coming up with ideas but then it was up to you know to other people to 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 make them happen and he and Julian was saying that it was getting harder and harder to to, to do that. Yes. And um, and the eyeballs was one of those ideas that on paper sounded great, but to have like a field full of eyeballs that were just looking up as at Sam Lowry as he flies over, um, it's just it was just it, it just didn't work out. It, it it got cut, I think, because it just. It didn't, you know, it didn't... It looked a bit hokey, did it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't look that great. I mean, and the thing is, I think that those models and everything, they just, they look wonderful. They just, you know, seeing it, watching it recently, you know, on HD, it looks, it looks still, it still looks great. And um, I, I, it was one of those films where, you know, it, it affected me as a kid. I mean, it was one right. of those films that stuck with me, and but um, you know, but it was also a film that uh, influenced me when I came to make my first short film. The whole idea of that double ending comes out of Brazil, right? Yes, yeah. No, I mean, it it, it is one of those films. Um, I I have to be honest. Um, it's a film that I didn't appreciate until later. Okay, and what I mean by that is, I I always I always um, sort of appreciated the artistry of it but never particularly liked it as an actual film if that oh, makes sense i mean okay. and, and i and i know like obviously i know uh, it's obviously like mark commode's favorite uh gilliam film and ev even our good friend clive who who does podcasts with us sometimes said that it's 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 the film that made him want to be a filmmaker so i know it's it's obviously massively influential um not only you know into a lot of things that have come since like for example you know the, the the double that was out a few years back with um uh what's his name um, um jesse uh, eisenberg jesse eisenberg yeah you can yeah. you can definitely see that uh you, you know that was massively inspired by a lot of the things going on in brazil but i have to say you loaned me your um your blu-ray edition and uh, yeah i thoroughly enjoyed it um watching it sort of more recently and uh uh you know sort of ha have found a bit more of a new appreciation for it but um when i was younger yeah th this one you know I'd, I'd be lying if i said i thought it was great because i actually didn't at the time like, there were many other gilliam films that i preferred you know like the aforementioned time bandits and etc over this one um but i can see why you've picked it yeah it's, it's not a kid's film i mean no 
I mean, this is the thing. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it once as a kid, and this, this the whole ending it being a downer kind of stuck with me. But it wasn't like a film that I went back and watched a lot. It was just it was one of those films I'd seen, and it kind of you know it just sort of stuck around in my head for a you know as growing up. Yeah, it, I, it's I, definitely I, something that sticks in the head for sure. Yeah, and, I've, yeah. and I mean, of course, it, it caused, you, you know, for, for Gilliam himself, this is one of those films that caused him a, an awful lot of trouble, um, you, you know, because of his obviously falling out with uh, Sid Scheinberg, who, who ran Universal at the time, um, because they, they actually wanted to sort of Hollywoodize the film and completely re-edit it and change the ending and all that sort of thing to make it more mainstream right mm, uh, <laughs> kind of is... it, it that's part of the story i mean what it was is that terry gilliam had final cut but final cut to a point uh he had to deliver the film uh it being uh under two i think it was like under two hours or two hours ten and it comes in at two hours fifteen so right uh, because the financing was split between two studios, so uh, 20th Century Fox had the rights to the film in Europe and Universal had the rights to the film in America. And uh, the film came out over here. It was a big success and, you know, it did well and we got, like, you know, the two-hour 15 cut. And then when it came to America... They, they had a contract with Universal for, you know, two hours or 2.10. And this is what Julian told me. They tried to cut it down to that, but they they couldn't. And Julian felt that if they just cut out a few more scenes, they would have come in under and it wouldn't have been a problem. But uh, Terry Gilliam s- stuck to his guns and said, well, no, I, I want it this length. And that's when, you know, things started to break down. And that's when Sid Scheinberg came in and said, well, you know, I'm friends with Spielberg. I know how these things are done. And this is when the the Love Conquers All cut came out. Uh-huh. Now, those of you who have, <laughs> have this film in uh, on the Criterion Collection, on this sort of uh, free disc special edition, have seen this film and can, you know, attest how bad it is. It's amazing uh, yeah. how you can take the same story and fuck it up. They 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 just concentrate on the love story and they get rid of most of the dystopian stuff. And you know, in the end, it does love conquers all. I mean, some cheesy stuff like um, when Sam first catches a glimpse of Jill, the dream girl, when he's uh, going to. Um, was it the Bureau of? Oh damn it, I can't remember. They're they're the they're the guys who, you know, they're they're the ones kind of running. They're they're the anti-terrorist guys. You know, right. they're the ones doing all the surveillance and coming up with the the the, the you know the the hit lists for criminals and stuff like that. They're the guys who do the tuttle buttle. Uh, mishap <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> and and he catches a glimpse of jill in a in a monitor but in the love conquers all there's a shot of her as the dream girl going sam in one of the monitors and then it just cuts off and it says ooh, that's fucking that's just terrible 
and they use like alternative shots as well the the shot at the end where you see them in the uh sort of mobile home that's the back of the trailer you know they've built they're just in the middle of green and you know looking like something i mean again it was like what they had done to the ending to blade runner here we were in this yes. dystopian future where there's, you know, everything's supposed to be industrialized and there's no green, there's no nature yet. <laughs> Deckard and Rachel just drive, just drive out the city and it's all green and mountains and looks like it's something. It's all from the, the Shining. It's, I was going to say that. You ruined my joke, man. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say it was like, like something out of the Shining. <laughs> but it's the, the same thing where, you know, they drive off you know, to this sort of green lush land where there's animals and they can, you know, and they totally escape this oppressive system. Mm. <laughs> Studio thought they knew best, but you, you know, yeah, you, mm. you have to hand it to um, Gilliam for, for standing up for that. I mean, I know he was quite controversial to the point that he actually put that ad in the uh, Hollywood reporter or something, didn't he? That's the one right, page yeah. saying when, when, when Sid Scheinberg going to release my film or something. Yeah. I was, it was dear Sid, when are you going to release my film? Signed Terry Gilliam. So there was that. And then there was the, con- um, they, they actually had like secret screenings of it, which kind of backfired in some sense because the, some of the screenings they actually had to get permission and it was like a toing and throwing between them and the studio i mean people on phones going can we can we, no, can we show we've got people here can we show what do you mean we can't show? you know it literally coming down to a while you know you imagine it you've gone to a screening of a film and there's people running around in the background saying well we're, we're talking to the studio if we can actually show it or not yeah and uh, but um there was sort of um there was a lot of support but especially from um from critics and it, it won the LA Critics Award and this it was kind of like the kick they needed to get it out there but i think uh universal didn't really um i think they released it but they didn't give it much publicity they didn't right. give it the publicity it needed and so it, it it sort of finally came out and and then it went and i think a lot of people found this film you know on video uh for me why this is movie heaven as well it's kind of like gilliam at his most visual i mean yes for one thing uh, the the some of the visuals in this are like a gut punch i mean the the stuff with at the beginning with the the battles when the um like the ss troopers are coming in smashing in through the windows and coming through the walls and especially at christmas yeah and it's just that it's stuff of nightmares i mean those kind of you know stormtroopers coming in so they'll the, the sort of the black sas gas masks and stuff and just you know and but some beautiful beautiful editing some beautiful shots i love the stuff where um when sam lowry goes to his mum's his mum is this like, oh yeah uh, <laughs> she she is um funny enough like a lot of women well no i'm not gonna say that um she is trying to keep hang on to her youth uh through the use of plastic surgery and um but her friend um 
has tried uh, chemical burns instead. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> as she says, my complication has got another complication. <laughs> yes. And, and again, that, that, that's another thing that we've seen sort of parodied mm. in many films since, isn't it? Mm. That, that whole sort of, uh, you know, the way they, they, they handle all that. And uh, yeah. yeah, very, very yeah. amusing. I mean, it's, it's, and it's all very well done with the prosthetics and whatever. <laughs> oh, indeed. I mean, the bit when Jim Broadbent is stretching her skin and everything and putting the plastic wrap around her face and she goes, what do you think? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. my point being about that was that there's a shot where he turns up to the party and you see this like figure at the bottom of the stairs uh, walk in and then the camera just sort of tilts up and there's Sam Lowry just about to enter. It's just such a beautiful shot because you think that was Sam down at the bottom and it's not, he's already up there. And it just, it's very economical as well because you don't have to show him coming up the stairs. Yes. It's, you know, you're there, it's going straight into the action. Uh, of course, there's the other shot where um, when Sam Lowry is driving in that little car and, you know, you've got the music going, Brazil, and you're seeing all these shots of the, you know, of the landscape. And there's this one shot where it's like um, low down going towards these chimney stacks and you see a blue sky and then you see this uh, like figure of an old man loom over it and you realise it's actually a model. Yeah. And it's a shot within the model. I mean, just just beautiful stuff like that. But yeah. I mean, no, uh, I mean, it's, there's it's, some great bits yeah. in it. I agree. And, it, it's, <laughs> and it's a story that's heavily influenced by, you know, 1984 and, um, oh, you know, uh, the author who wrote, um, like, um, oh, God, The Trial. And I'm trying, what's his name? You talk about the sort of George Orwellian um aspects to it yeah with the 1984 stuff but yeah but there's there's another writer who is very much about that he he you know the whole sort of people out to get you i mean you know stuff like the trial and oh god sorry escapes me old age i'm afraid ah yeah doesn't (laughs) get any easier does it yeah but (laughs) it it has a a lot of those ideas and it and it, it it plays them out very well and I mean, the also the, uh, the thing that Gilliam says about this film is that it it was kind of like he, how he wanted to sort of sort of do the action in it was that it was it was action that had consequences. So there's there's the bit where there's the chase scene there in the truck, and Sam sort of unlocks this uh, trailer that's got like a like a house on the end on the back of it, and it dis- destroy it, it sort of blows up the um the cars behind them and you see sam cheering going yeah and then you just see these poor guys coming out the flames burning to alive and look yeah, at his pretty face. Nasty. <laughs> and it's just and it was and he was saying because at the time you had films like indiana jones where the violence had no consequences you know somebody could get killed or thrown off a cliff or uh, but there was no consequences you never saw you know what happened to those poor people because the, the adventure continues on because you're having such a good time and uh it sort of does drive that home you know quite a bit and you know the whole idea of the the government sort of taking you away just because of of, of one thing and uh, with sam lowry why he gets arrested in the end is because one thing has led to another 
it starts off with a check that has to go to uh, Mrs. Buttle because of the mistakes that had happened. And, of course, Mr. Mr. Buttle had died in one of his tortures because the paperwork, and it's a film about paperwork, where it said Tuttle. And, of course, Tuttle didn't have a heart problem, but Buttle, it does. And, of course, you have the most nicest um, torturer ever in the shape of Michael Palin as Jack Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he sees things from a very reasonable point of view, you know. But it, so it starts from that. He wants to get a check back and then uh, the vehicle he's in gets destroyed and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't fill in the paperwork for it. And then he goes to the, uh, oh, it's the Ministry of Information. That was what I was thinking of earlier. Oh, you that's know. right. Yes. 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 The, With that wonderful this very scene. sort of industrialised future, isn't it? That well, they do it, so it, well. Well, this is the thing. They use the same set. But they just took everything out. I mean, this is a film where they use a lot of um, wide angles to make everything look bigger than it actually was. And when he walks into the Ministry of Information and it's just that one man behind the desk and there's nothing else, there's no security. And he's like, don't you want to see my badge? And it says, well, you wouldn't be here, sir, if you weren't supposed to. That's just <laughs> really creepy as hell. But that, that, that wonderful scene with Ian Richardson leading the pack of people because he's dynamic and he's go-getting, you know, and he's just just moving throughout. It's just this frenetic kind of movement because it it, it's, like, it's like something out of a Warner Brothers cartoon, especially when he gets there and there's nobody around and you just hear somebody go past and then somebody go past this way and then he's just he's dragged into it. It's like snatched up by this beast, these, you know, whole load of, of people who are stuffed that they're, you know, trying to get uh, uh, Mr. Warren's, his name, attention. And he's like, yes, no, here you are, Sam. Uh, welcome to the team. Uh, you know, and he's just doing five different things at the same time. Yes, uh, no, absolutely. Great stuff. <laughs> I, I have a great story to tell about uh, De Niro. We always like stories about De Niro, so that's good. <laughs> well, as you know, um, because the producer on this was, uh, oh God, it's, uh, is it Aaron Milshan? Let me have a look. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he had just worked with De Niro on Once Upon a Time in America, and he was able to convince him to come on board. Now, he originally wanted to play Jack Lynn, but... Um, Terry wanted Michael Palin to, to play that part. Uh, so he came on to play Harry Tuttle, the sort of, you know, heroic plumber. <laughs> yes. The death-defying plumber. <laughs> yes. You know, he comes, he's there for the action. Get in, get out. You know, he just, he had no time for paperwork, which uh, unfortunately is what gets him in the end. The paperwork gets him in the end. And, um, and so... He came in, he did his, his part, and then he had to do some ADR. And so it was only a couple of lines. And uh, this is what uh, Julian told me. So, you know, they thought it wouldn't take any time at all. So they come in and he did it, you know, he did it a couple of times. So that's great. And he was like, mm, I'm not happy about it. Can I do it again? So they did it again and then again and again. And then like 
hours passed and he was literally had to fly back that day and they were literally pushing him out the studio and say no it's fine it's fine it's great just get go you need to get your plane and they were like oh phew, thank god he's you know he's gone now <laughs> and then they get a phone call from De Niro at the airport going well I'm not quite happy with my reading <laughs> brilliant <laughs> <laughs> see that's what a perfectionist that man is yeah amazing yeah. <laughs> i mean um julian being the editor of the film as well he sort of told me about some tricks he used um for uh for some of the editing in it and stuff like that and uh one trick he told me about was that um he was able to get some good reaction shots uh from the actress kim greased um because she did this thing where um when they brought the clapperboard over she would always watch it go it was just this, this thing she would do she would just watch the clapperboard go and he said well it, it was amazing because that footage actually helped him so much you know in the editing of that film so if he needed a reaction shot he could use one of those and it was a very good lesson for me uh for editing because you know Sometimes it's not just the footage between action and cut that you can use. There are there are the moments when you're they're, they're waiting for action and there's the moments after you say cut. Yeah, so no, definitely. It's always, so it's always worth looking at uh, all the footage. And I wish more, you know, directors would do that because um, I, I think this is one of, you know, without wanting to get too much off topic here, but I think that's one of the... Uh, the problems now with the fact that, um, you know, because 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 you can shoot as much footage as you like now uh, compared to the film days where, you know, you were very limited by stock. People sort of shoot the arse out of everything, but then don't necessarily take the time to review all of the dailies and pick the best bits. And uh, I think that's very key. I think that's something that's very important as a director's job is to go through and uh, watch everything and pick those those good moments you know <laughs> oh definitely i mean though um i don't know if it was uh i think that was more julian though than and than terry on that right yeah i mean because um when it came to casting of jill uh terry gilliam did look at every up-and-coming actress in hollywood at the time uh including uh rebecca de monet Right. This is and this is before she did the hand that rocked the ca uh, cradle, and uh, he went with uh, Kim Grist, who was kind of an unknown at the time. And you know, she, she's not. She didn't have much a career after this. I mean, I think this is sort of the biggest thing she did. I mean, she she was the wife in Manhunter, and she was in Punchline with uh, Tom Hanks. But I, I, I don't sort of remember her doing too much she was never like in a role like she was in brazil it's uh, it's interesting isn't it how these um how these careers develop based on uh, choices that are made early on <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh it's it, it's funny it's one of those films that um you know it, it's sort of stood the test of time it's it is you know it, it, people kind of lump it into oh it's an 80s film but it's it, it's kind of timeless it's 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 sort of it seems to be more relevant now than it ever has been 
I mean, the way of uh, the political situation at the moment. And um, and if it's a film you've not seen, I, I really highly recommend seeing it. No, I, I, I would I would second that. I would second that. Like like I said, even though earlier on it was not one of my favourites um, films of Gilliam's, if I'm honest, it was probably because I didn't necessarily understand it or get it in the same way that I, you know, now view it as an old, you know, as an adult. And, and like you said, it's almost, it's bizarre. It's almost more relevant today than it probably was. Well, actually, I guess it was mid eighties. So it probably, mm. it, it, yes, it had its, um, it obviously it was in that sort of whole Reagan esque era, wasn't it? Of, um, yeah, Thatcher. Of, uh, yeah. Ma- yeah. Thatcher Reagan materialism, yuppie, you know, all of, all of that sort of stuff. So I guess it did have, did have relevance then as well but uh but i i ne- never necessarily uh, in those days you know as a as a uh, an adolescent stroke teenager you know necessarily picked up on those themes if you like it was it was it was more about what was going on on the screen and and i have to say i mean visually um you, you, you know it, it really worked and, and and was definitely inspired by those sort of like like you said the sort of blade runner and the uh orwellian um, you, you, you know, uh, look of the dystopian future and, and, and whatever, and, and did it very well, I thought, in, in that t- t- term. And, and, and definitely, you know, it's inspired that sort of industrial uh, bureaucracy look in, 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 you know, many other films that have come since. So, yes. yeah, very and, good. <laughs> and that author I was trying to remember, Kafka. Kafka, yes, okay. Friends Kafka, yeah, so yeah. that sort of Kafkaesque. Bill, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, very much so. Totalitarian, yeah, yeah, but the whole <laughs> idea of of an innocent man being pursued by the government, you know, yes, yeah, very much so. Good right? No, hey, great. No, no, good, good pick, and I enjoyed. <laughs> thank you for picking it because I enjoyed, I enjoyed rewatching it, and it, and like I said, it kind of refueled my enthusiasm for a film that of his that. Um, you know, I know loads of people are massively uh, into, and and it was, you know, the one that I wasn't quite, didn't quite get as much, and and yeah, it was very good to go back and sort of revisit it. So, um, yeah, jolly good work. <laughs> <laughs> so, Keith, that's why is... we do this show. <laughs> <laughs> so, Keith, you can't put it off any longer. What is yeah, your pick okay. for movie heaven? Well, yeah, okay. Um, it's probably quite obvious uh, sort of branching out from that mm. but but i mean just just to sort of you know using brazil as a sort of jumping off point and sort of talking about his career a little bit it is it is sort of interesting because i think up until that point and and the following film you know which is the adventures of baron muchausen yeah the the films that he did were all kind of he was somewhat involved in the inception and conception and design of the films you you know they were they were very much his baby yeah and it was interesting because the film that sort of gave him a turnaround with his career was one that's still very gilliam-esque but was one where it was a slightly different thing where he was he was bought on you know he was a director for hire as it were and it was massively successful and i almost picked this as heaven which was the fisher king in mm. in 91 which uh, i think this was the first film it is that i saw at the cinema and um 
I remember, I mean, a big Jeff Bridges and, and Robin Williams fan anyway, but I remember really loving this film. And, and it, it was kind of the thing I was obviously starting to think about, you know, film school and, and all that sort of thing around that time. And it was what, it was the film that really sort of grabbed my attention um, with, uh, with Gilliam as, as a great film, it was obviously very successful. However, the one I've actually picked just because this is really up my alley and, and is definitely my favourite Gilliam film to date, is in fact from 1995, and it's uh, 12 Monkeys, which is the uh, uh, neo-noir science fiction film that he did. Um, you, you know, really love this film. Um, it was written by the uh, writer of Blade Runner and, and, and his wife, uh, who themselves were inspired by um, Chris Marker's uh, short film La Jetty. Um And they sort of took inspiration from that, didn't they? Yeah. The saying about David Peoples, David Peoples was actually, he was brought on as a writer after he Hampton was. Fincher. So That's right. Sorry. He was, yeah, he was one yeah. of the writers. <laughs> Is it Hampton Fincher or Hampton Fenton? Uh, Fant oh god let me just check this <laughs> give me a second wow. <laughs> i'm sure he's Wait, not a i'm sure he's not a fincher <laughs> <laughs> uh hampton fancher that's it yes hampton fancher was the the first writer and then uh david peoples was brought on yes exactly and um uh you know he and his wife janet peoples um as i said they they, they wrote this script for Universal, as I said, it was it was based on, in terms of just the premise, was based on this Chris Marker 1962 film called La Jetty. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, which Gilliam had never watched and still hasn't watched, so, uh, you know, he, he, he made it his own, uh, very much so. Um, and again, it, you know, it deals with this sort of dystopian future, um, but it's very much a film about the perception of reality. So, you know, it's about what's r real and what isn't. So, you, you, you know, the, there's this guy that was sent back from the future to save um, humanity, but we, we're not quite, it's always very ambiguous in, in, in sort of typical Gilliam fashion is as to whether or not, you know, this guy is actually is indeed a time traveler who's come back to do that or whether he is just crazy. <laughs> and, that, and that's, and that's what works so nicely about the film is, is the fact that, um, you, you know, we see it from the point of view of this character, who's uh, a character called James Cole played by Bruce Willis. And again, very interestingly, this is kind of a bit of a departure because this was, um, obviously long after the, or, or after the diehard, uh, franchise and you know Bruce Willis was definitely at this point a massive massive movie star um, and was very known for doing his sort of action adventure films etc yet this was a film where he had to play a character that was much more internalized and and, and definitely not an action hero in any way shape or form so um, I know uh, Gilliam originally didn't necessarily want a uh, a film star in this role, but of course, you know this was this was a big Universal Studio picture, and uh, it needed to sell. So, um, you know, he he got to work with Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis obviously wanted to work with um, Gilliam as well because 
as many actors, a big fan of Gilliam's work and, and, and you know, wanting to work with him here. Um, and he's paired in this film with Madeline Stowe, uh, who was, uh, you know, pretty big at the time, actually. And um, interestingly, Brad Pitt, who at the time that they were making this film, hadn't quite hit the level of stardom that he that he had by the time this was released. Um you know, he he had been known as being, you know, the the the, the hunky cowboy guy in uh, Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise, but hadn't Legends of the Four, and um, there was another film as well, which has completely gone out of my head. But they hadn't been released at that point, had they? <laughs> it's it's called a, a River Run f- Runs Through. It's the um, that's right, uh, Robert Redford film. Robert Redford about, film, yes. The Robert Redford film about fishing. About fly fishing, yes, indeed. Um, but you know that th- those films hadn't come out and hadn't been sort of, you know, at the time they were making this. And then, of course, by the time they did, um, you know, Brad Pitt was a, a, a massive star, and uh, that you know they had some problems during the production um, in terms of uh, y- you know stopping the the locations, etc., being swamped by. Uh, you know, hordes of adoring uh, young girls <laughs> trying to get a glimpse of, of Brad Pitt. But again, a film whereby Brad Pitt um, plays very, very differently to 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 what you know we we'd known him for up until that point, and and probably quite differently to a lot of stuff he's done since as well. Um, playing a uh, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Goines, who's this uh, pen, um, patient in an asylum. That uh, um, in Baltimore in in, in 1990, uh, which is where um, Bruce Willis's character is sent back from 2035, um, and uh, you, you know th- this is this is one of those this works on so many levels. This film it's it's one of those films which is really multi layered, um, very very visual indeed. I mean this does have. Gilliam stamped all over it in terms of its design. Um, it, you know, it's interesting production design. Um, it's got a very interesting narrative to it. You know, it's got one of these circular type storylines going on. Um, you know, I'm sure many people listening have probably already seen this, but I would just say that if you haven't, for some bizarre reason, if it's one of those films that has got by you, um, then absolutely you know we all have them uh please go go and see this because this is an absolutely amazing movie on on all levels um you, you know it's design it's art direction it's cinematography is is incredible um the performances are really good uh the storyline it's really gripping and compelling um and as you can probably tell i really love it by the way i'm infusing here um the 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 other thing i mean uh, about this film which again if you're interested in filmmaking um is very good is on the uh blu-ray and dvd releases of this this there was an absolutely outstanding um behind the scenes documentary which ran for an hour and a half as well called the hamster factor and other tales of 12 monkeys and this is a really really good fly on the wall um documentary about the entire production you you know right from good and bad uh you you know right from right from the pre-production through to its release and uh, it doesn't pull any punches you know you you see 
Bruce Willis, uh, you know, in, in disagreements with with Terry Gilliam over certain, um, uh, you, you know, choices. Uh, you see all of that stuff. You see the producer, Charles Roven, and, um, you know, Terry Gilliam and getting into it over over budget issues and over things like Gilliam's attention to detail on certain things that uh, don't necessarily drive the story along <laughs> and all that. So it really is, it really is a, a very, um, a very, uh, y- you know, on the war right there um, documentary as well. So, um, you know, you could do worse than go out and buy yourself the, uh, the Blu-ray of this and check the film out and then watch its wonderful documentary. Uh, so well, I love the- this film. The documentary is made by the same people who made uh, uh, Lost in La Mancha. That's I mean, right, which was a fabulous documentary that well, we've mentioned before, the, wasn't the, it? Yeah. The reason why the hamster factor exists is because uh, <laughs> Gillian wanted a record of the making of this because he was working for Universal Pictures. And yes. as we just spoken about in Brazil, he didn't have an exactly good time with them. And it is kind of ironic that Universal, after having such bad relations with him in the 80s, then in the 90s came back to him to get, to, you know, ask him to make this film. But because uh, Fisher King had been such a success that they felt confident that he could helm this film and, you know, it turn a profit. And it did. It was, I think it's... Um, uh, one of the, I, f- I think it's the highest grossing Terry Gilliam film. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. if it was. Yeah. Um, but uh, y- y- you know, it, it is. It is a really. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't particularly. Even though the ending's really, really cool. To talk, I don't particularly want to talk about it because I don't want to give the spoilers away. Because it is. It is. If you haven't seen it before, it really, really works. And even now, when I watch it. Um, you know, knowing what's going to happen, uh, I'm still massively intrigued by all of this. Um, it's it's very interesting as well, in so much as um, as most things do in Hollywood now. You, you know, all all of the studios and production companies, etc., are looking to you know turn properties into franchises. And you know, in the last few years, we've had all sorts of things. Um, turned into adaptations for for television series, etc. And indeed, that there, there has been a um, uh, a twelve made by the Sci-Fi Channel for for Univer- um, for a Canadian Sci-Fi Channel um, a uh, television series based yeah. on this. But it is very loosely based on it in terms of it's taken the character uh, names and the basic premise. However when you watch it is nothing like um there's no there's no gilliam-ness to it at all meaning um whereas whereas ten- terry gilliam tends to go so, sort of for this very formalistic approach with his design and with the way this looks and obviously the whole film is very ambiguous as to whether this is actually happening or not um the the tv show has taken a much more sort of realistic uh, almost like a sort of terminator type view of the future and you know you see you see the time machine and it's it's you know it's very what you'd expect of 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 sort of sci-fi action stuff so even even though it has spawned a tv series as i said it is only really um 
just sort of taken the basic premise and uh Turn, turn, turned it into a and into a sort of weekly episodic time travel adventure show um but uh but yeah it, it, it's it's this film is this film is fantastic and for me um as i said fisher king is is quite high up there as well but um for me this this was my definite um movie heaven pick for for terry gilliam so uh, check it out <laughs> yes well before we move on to our hells i just want to talk about le jeté because le jeté is very very much an influential film um funny enough back in my panico days this was a film that you know we were suggested to go and watch because uh of its use of uh telling a story through stills yes now um 12 monkeys as a remake is a remake done well because it takes a premise from uh from the jetté and but tells a, a completely different story around it now the story of the jetté is about a man who has a dream about be, seeing a, something happen at an airport and this is really the only thing that they've kept in 12 monkeys is this whole idea of a dream and something happening at an airport and I'm not really giving too much away because uh, in 12 Monkeys, this is the first thing you see. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but uh, with Le Jeté, uh how um, the main character is able to travel back in time is through the use of this dream, this memory. And, of course, everything is told through stills. And he goes back and he meets a woman and he falls in love and he has a relationship with her and the people in the future uh use this as a way of him contacting people from the future to help them in this sort of um post apocalyptic france i mean paris has been hit by a nuclear bomb it's just you know and um it's it's a it's a beautiful story it's only 30 minutes long and it's it's well worth watching uh as relation to 12 monkeys and uh but 12 monkeys it does its own thing uh it uses a, the premise of of a, a memory at an airport <laughs> but the rest of the story is completely different to le jeté but yeah. It's it's because of that use of the memory in the dream, that's why it's it's based on the Jesse. That's right. But, but it's it is a case of of a remake done well. No, I, I agree. I mean, because it is. it is it's it's not it's not a you know, beat by beat, you know, just re, uh, remake. It goes and does its own thing. It's and that's why it's it's really good, uh, and that's why I kind of see the two films kind of being separate i don't really you know it's not like oh 12 monkeys is better than the jetté because the jetté is its own kind of film oh yeah yeah, yeah no it's, it's just it's yeah. just inspired i mean basically what they're doing and rightly so is that the the, the screenwriters of this are crediting what was an inspiration mm. to, to to this film and that's and that's all really isn't it i mean they had to anyway just because of that one plot uh, device that they used yeah i mean there was no getting away away from that you know something happening at an airport that's a dream and a memory 
the Jesso. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think I think actually to be fair to the TV show as well, they have actually named a uh, a character in it Marker as a uh, as a sort of nod to, to that as well. Yeah. One of the, one of the characters in it's called somebody Marker. So it's it's kind of that that sort of wink there as well. But um but the thing is with this is in terms of of you know Terry Gilliam and Terry Gilliam's look and Terry Gilliam's um, stamp uh, as a visionary director on a piece of work. Um, you know, there is no doubt about it. This this dystopian future, which is is wonderfully created in this film. Um, you, you know, in in the, the 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 machinery again in it. You know, much like we were talking about in the Brazil thing with the design and look i mean this 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 absolutely does have terry gilliam's mark stamped all over it and uh you know i think this is one of those examples where you have a really good story and a really good premise and a really talented visionary director and a good strong cast and this is one of those films where all of the parts of the machine really work in unison and 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 the finished result is is a great piece of cinema so um yeah i i you know i i really highly recommend this one to anyone <laughs> anyone interested in filmmaking should check this out <laughs> <laughs> well moving on from a a great piece of cinema to a not so great piece of cinema <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to talk about my pick for movie hell is the follow is f his following film to Twelve Monkeys, which is Fear and yes. Loathing in Las Vegas, yes. uh, which was released in 1998 and again through Universal Pictures. Mm. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there going, "How could you say that? This is a great film. It's it's such a." You know, it's one of those films that it's it's of its time. It's a piece. It's a great book, and it's like, yeah, I just do not get it. I, I've 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 watched this now three times, and each time I kind of it's one of those films where I, I want to get it. I can want to see what people are talking about when they say this is a great film. And I don't. I just I oh, this is such a slog. Now, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no i mean it, i mean I, I was at film school when this came out in 98 so um i went to see this at the cinema with a load of my uh you know film school compadres and uh yeah i i kind of had the i mean a lot of my sort of stoner uh film school friends loved it but um yeah it, it, i have to say it wasn't uh it wasn't really my thing i i i had hard I had a hard time with it then and now watching it. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you on this one. <laughs> okay. Well, um, as you probably know, it's based on the Hunter S. Thompson book and uh, stars Johnny Depp and uh, Benicio Del Toro. It has a lot of cameos from well-known actors. And it's, well, it, you know, it's about Hunter s thompson's sort of um i guess alias uh Rao duke and his lawyer dr gonzo and their sort of drug fuel trip to las vegas and you know 
yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think it's probably one of those films, to be honest, um, that <laughs> could probably be appreciated a lot more uh, if you're off your face, you know, um, whilst watching it. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. I, I watched the DVD of this, and unfortunately, it wasn't. I didn't get the Criterion edition, and the only reason I think that's a shame is I'd have loved to have heard. Uh, one thing Terry Gilliam is very good at is doing commentaries where he's very candid, and um, he does a commentary on this one. And from my understanding, this is one of the works that he's most proud of. Okay, so I would have really liked to have heard his commentary because. You know, I've got my theories as as to why this doesn't work. Um, but but yeah. But anyway, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt your your flow on it. So uh, we'll we'll get to that. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the I think the making of it and the sort of and Hunter S. Thompson himself is very is a very interesting topic and far more interesting than this film. Um. I mean, I, I, there's there was a great documentary that um, Johnny Depp uh, narrated, which was, you know, it was a sort of eye-opening about Hunter S. Thompson, and you know, it was it was very interesting. And um, there was another documentary that opens with um, uh, let me just see what the actor's name. Oh, with uh, Gary Busey. And he takes the filmmakers to where they shot the scene where he appears as the sheriff. And he's talking to Raoul Duke. And, uh, of course, Raoul Duke's very paranoid because he's taken some drugs. And Gary Busey's sheriff is very strange. Yes. <laughs> and, and Gary Busey's even stranger because he talks about this and he's, you know... I, I think the clip's like on on youtube where he's like he starts off and he goes ask me that question again no no like like we're having a conversation ask me again and it, it just it becomes this really strange thing where he talks about how they shot the scene and how he improvised some of it and the whole stuff at the end where he goes can i have a hug it was all you know Gary Busey yeah. and it kind of in some ways that kind of sums up this film that the film is well I wouldn't say it's it feels like it's improvised there's a there's a lot of weird stuff that happens and the the overall story is kind of not that interesting I mean the story is two guys go on a drug binge around Las Vegas but the thing is, as a piece of writing, it was kind of sums up the the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. This whole kind of, you know, peace and love didn't win, but excess is on its way. Because, it, it, you know, the 70s into the 80s, you know, led into, you know, greed is good, and yuppies and the Reagan era and all that kind of stuff. And the seventies kind of was this wilderness years in between. 
and from that point of view, I mean, the the the, the speech about the the wave that was the sixties, the peace and love movement. Um, that 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 is a great bit of filmmaking. Uh, I thought that was a great sequence. Uh, I, 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 see, the, the the point that this film loses me is after that after the, the the race in the desert. So yep. Raoul Duke's gone there to you know to cover this uh, cross country race that happens, and you you, you open up with them in the car and they're you know seeing bats and it's, it's that bit everybody knows it was shown in so much in the the trailers and um that's it's kind of like that's when you're kind of thinking am i gonna like this am i not okay i'm gonna I, i'll give it a go and then you get to the hotel and you've seen lizards and you're going okay this is a bit weird and then you see him, they check into the room and then this room just gets not just destroyed, but becomes this morphous, different thing. You know, it, it, it becomes like a swamp at one point. And <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a sort of string of, of sort of visuals and vignettes and stuff that happens and where these two guys just literally take the piss until finally they just have to leave, you know? Yeah. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people screaming at this guy, you don't get it, you don't get it. No, I don't get it. I, I, you know, I don't see the metaphor. I don't see, you know, these guys being, I don't know, sort of uh, a depiction of, of an error. It's just, it's just well, a half. Yeah. It's a hard film to watch, and no, I, I just, I, wanna, I, I just want to say, I just want to say, um, that I just, I, th I think it's a film that you can see, especially with Johnny Depp, that it's kind of affected the rest of his career. I, I think if he hadn't done this, then uh, Jack Sparrow wouldn't kind of be the way he is. Because there's a lot of these weird mannerisms that you can see have been distilled into Jack Sparrow, and I think yeah. I think this is sort of on record to sort of saying this is you know as as much as it was um, the guitarist from Rolling Stones, it's also he is also doing Hunter S. Thompson in that part. Yeah, no, I I I, I agree. I mean this this is this film. You know, uh, I suppose part of it is is somewhat of a statement on that sort of post Vietnam uh, era. Um, well, I mean, it takes place. I mean, Vietnam's still going. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. you've got. I, um, I, I think it might be post Watergate. Yeah, but it's kind of that era, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, what I find interesting about it is apparently, you know, Scorsese and Oliver Stone had wanted to make this for some time and hadn't been able to get it off the ground. And then I believe there was a, another director attached. Ah, um, I think yes. Alex Cox was yes. attached. Is that can, right? Can I tell the story? Yes. Yeah, you can. Cause, yeah, yeah, cause yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm fuzzy on it. So okay. yeah, you can probably okay. tell it better than okay. me. Okay. Um, so um, I remember cause when this film came out in 98, I was at Panico 
See, it comes back to oh, Calico. Okay. There you go. And uh, there was a there was a show on Channel Four, which they did that behind the scenes stuff, and they they spoke about this. So originally, uh, it was Alex Cox. Well, so the film is produced by Hunter S. Thompson's wife, and this is a project that she's been pushing for a long time. And originally, they had Alex Cox and his writing partner Todd Davies to do the to write the screenplay and to direct it and they were literally ready to go when uh there was a falling out between Alex Cox and the and the producer and Hunter S Thompson who was you know had his say on this uh there's this weird thing about that uh Alex Cox wanted to use animation in the in the film he didn't want it to be all live action and Hunter S Thompson could not understand this even though his his books his stories have uh you know illustrations like uh, Ronald Dow has uh the guy who always does the illustrations in his books Hunter S Thompson always had the guy who did the illustrations for his and they Alex Cox wanted to sort of have that in the film and Hunter S. Thompson didn't. And I think that was the main argument that they had. So Terry Gilliam was brought on and with his writing partner, Tony Grissoni, came in and they rewrote the script. But then when it was presented to the WGA, the WGA ruled that actually the screenplay credit should go to Alex Cox and Todd Davies. And their standing is, was that, that it was exactly the same script. It had the same, um, what they call log lines. Um, what log lines? Well, the, when, adapt, when adapting a book, you have to put in, like, stuff to, you know, to, to, to fill in, you know, fill in the blanks, fill in the in-between the lines. It's not log lines, it's something else. And what they were saying, Todd Davies and Alice Cox, was these exact sentences, these paragraphs, was the same as in Terry Gilliam and Tony Grissoni's uh, script. Now, the thing is, when you're adapting a novel or a piece of literature, it's going to be the same, isn't it? Because you're not going to... They weren't going to change it that much. So there were always going to be similarities. But in the end... Uh, Terry Gilliam and Tony Grassoni was able to um, uh, appeal and they got their names above Todd Davies and Alex Cox in the credits. But this did leave, uh, lead to Terry Gilliam burning his WGA card. You know, he said, ah. he said the, the appeal was actually longer than the script, had more pages in it than the script. Ah. <laughs> uh. But the, of course, the WGA, their mission is to protect the writer or writers. And so they felt that it was so similar to the Dodd Davies and Alex Cox screenplay that they needed, that they should be credited as well. And as they were the first people to, you know, well, they weren't the first people to set that script, but uh, they're the ones who wrote before Terry Gilliam and Tony Grassoni that they should get credited. Was it fair that they were the only ones credited at first? No, that was that was a bad call in the WGA. But um, but yeah, I I mean my heart 
does go to Terry Gilliam and Tony Grissoni, the fact that they had to, you know, do this massive appeal just to get their names in the credits. And it just worked out that they got their names above the other two writers. Mm, Okay. I I must admit, part of me does kind of almost want to, uh, to get the Criterion collection just to sort of hear Gilliam's view on all of this. Because as I said, I wasn't really able to find that much um, out about it. But from what I understand, it's a film that he's actually, you know, quite satisfied with and quite proud of. Um, and yeah, I mean, y- you know, it's one of those films I kind of wanted to watch it and wanted to like it. Um, but I just found it, you know, I mean... It's got some. It's got some definite Gilliam visuals in it. There's no doubt about that. You know, some of the the animation and you know when the sort of seventies, you know, floral carpet <laughs> comes to life and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, totally get that. What I think the film suffers from, and this is just this is purely my view on it. Um, and you know, I it's, it's, this is just an opinion of me. I'm not saying that this is by any chance uh, anything I've read or is is true or anything. Is the fact that I believe one of the problems with this film is that um, both Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro got way way too much leeway to do their own thing with this. I mean, you mentioned about the sort of improvised feel of it. Um, I think that they needed more of a leash on what they were doing. And I guess, I mean, I guess Terry Gilliam found a lot of what they were doing funny, so kind of went with it. But it it does feel like, and I know this is kind of the point, that that they're supposed to be out of control. I get that. But it just feels, it it feels almost actory as a result. So you've got, you know, Johnny Depp with this... um, but a bold-headed Johnny Depp doing, you know, definitely, as you said, it's sort of pre- a precursor to Captain Jack Sparrow. And you've got a fat Benicio Del Toro who seems to be puking all the time in this film. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I, I found it very tedious, actually, I have to say. I found it a tedious watch, you know? I, well... <laughs> I, I think it's I don't think it's kind of like Dan's the acting I think the acting is alright actually I think it's the only thing that kind of gets you through it is actually Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro I think if it had been anybody else I, I think it would I don't think I would have been able to sit through it at all but um, I think what the problem comes down to is this was deemed to be an unfilmable unfilm- book and in some ways it is uh, I mean it's amazing that they you know, were able to bring it to the screen and it made kind of sense. But it, as as a film-going experience for me, it was just, uh, it was just a, it was just a trudge because the book is, 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 um, you know, it, it's sort of, it's just from his point of view, it's just sort of a conscious spouting of thoughts about things and, you know, that's going on and so to make that into a film it's it's very difficult um you know it it just it just didn't work for me as as a cinema going experience and you know it's it's a film that i come back to once in a while 
that I try. I sit down, I watch, and I I, I still just don't get it. I just yeah, no, I, I get just it. Don't the, get the, into it. The filmmaker in you wants to like it. Uh, I, th- that that's kind of how I feel. Is like the filmmaker in me feels that it should like this film, but. Uh, but Keith actually doesn't. And, uh, you, you know, it's weird. I'll tell you what else seemed weird watching it now as well was the whole sort of Debbie Reynolds thing seemed really like mm. bizarre because I'd totally forgotten about that. And obviously yeah. she did record the uh, the dialogue for it, didn't she? Yes, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, that all seems very sad and bizarre now as well. So, um, but yeah, it, it's, 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 uh, I, I could see why you picked it for, for hell and uh, i think it's one of those things that people either it's a little bit of a marmite film i think mm. i think you either love it or hate it um and it's hard it is quite hard to be objective about it really <laughs> yeah. if, 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 you, if you sit on either side of of that fence i think um and uh yeah it's it's, it's certainly not one of my favorite um gilliam films uh i, I would say it's one of the, the the weaker in his um in his filmography Yes. Uh, which, you know, generally speaking, is a strong filmography. So, uh, you know, picking movie hell is 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 kind of difficult because it's not necessarily that he makes bad films. It's just whether we as individuals enjoy them or not. That's that's the way exactly. I kind of look at it. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, uh-huh. <laughs> Keith, what is your pick for movie hell? Right. Well, for movie hell... Um, I went with something that I thought the concept of this film was actually better than the the outcome of, of the film, and that was uh, 2005's adventure fantasy film, um, The Brothers Grimm, uh, which is obviously, you, you know, based on the uh, German folklore fairy tales, and and you know, the Brothers Grimm that. Uh, that, that, that told these stories. Um, and, oh, I don't know, you know, that there are a lot of reasons why I think this film should work, but I think overall it sort of misses, misses something slightly. And I feel that it's almost got a bit of a, for me anyway, a little bit of a style over substance thing going on. Um, so essentially you've got Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, uh, cast in this, um, playing the Brothers Grimm. Um, Willem is play, played by Matt Damon and, and uh, Jack by Heath Ledger. Um, and it takes place in French-occupied Germany in the early 1800s. And they're kind of... I mean, obviously, this is not... It's fair to say this is not a... Uh, a biography or anything, a biopic of, of, of the actual Brothers Grimm. It's, it's just using them as characters in this sort of uh, uh, rather absurd story where um, they are con artists, essentially, that, that make a living by uh, disposing of ghosts in various um, small towns um, but they actually, if you like, create the ghosts um, through the use of their own sort of special effects, as it were. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things it does quite, I mean, it is very Gilliam-esque in terms of it, it, it's, it's very visual. Um, and one of the things it does do quite nicely is it does try and sort of tie in all of the grim fairy tales, you, you know, so they sort of, 
meet at this central point at this forest um where where all of this takes place but uh i, I I, I don't know. I just found, I mean, it's, it's got great act. You, you know, you've got Ben Affleck and Heath, I'm sorry, Ben Affleck, Matt, Matt Damon and Heath Ledger. Uh, it's like, it's like Freudian slip there. Matt Damon and Heath Ledger. I was just going to ask you, are you looking forward to seeing the new Batman film with Matt, yeah, Matt Damon yeah, yeah. in it? With Matt Damon. <laughs> no. uh, you've also got, um, which I always love to watch, uh, Monica Belushi in this for, for obvious reasons. Uh, and then you've got some great performances by Jonathan Price, who is obviously in Brazil, and um, Peter Stormare, who, who you know, is, is always wonderful at playing these sort of over-the-top characters. But what I, what I just found with this was, in terms of pacing, that the, the film, for me, seemed to get a little bit stuck in the middle. Um, and also, some of the visual effects on it the more cgi type effects um i i thought looking at it now looked quite dated as well um so in terms of actual entertainment this this one for me like i said it's hard to pick a bad um terry gilliam film but i i i just picked this one because i i just felt it what it didn't quite live up to what it could have been and again, um, I, I listened only only to the very beginning of, of, of uh, the commentary on this because I didn't unfortunately have time to watch the whole thing. But again, Terry, Terry Gilliam is quite uh, candid uh, and blunt in his commentaries. And he admits that he took this project on as a director for hire uh, on a script that he didn't particularly like himself which I think is quite interesting because I think the, the weak aspect of this um, is really that the, you know, the visuals, it's a visually lush and, and beautiful film. Um, but the actual story, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just felt it got stuck in the middle and I, I found myself getting bored watching it. Um, so I, I don't know. What did you think? What did you think? Let's, let's take a different perspective. <laughs> well, it's not much uh, different from yours, Keith. Oh, okay. Uh, if anything, this was going to be my original pick for uh, Movie Hell. Okay. <laughs> you beat me too. Fine. Okay. <laughs> but no, the thing is, uh, I saw this at a free screening uh, when it came out, and uh, I was, oh, it was, it was such a disappointment. Uh, it was, it felt like somebody was doing a homage to a Terry Gilliam film. And then you found out it was Terry Gilliam. Right, yes. <laughs> now, I mean, for one thing, it was well known at the time there was a lot of studio interference. I mean, this was made by... Um, oh, God. Um, this the Weinsteins. That's yeah. it. Miramax. So, yeah. so Miramax. And they very much put their, their hands into it and, you know, messed around with it. I mean, you can watching it. You can tell there's some big. There's 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 one bit where they're in the village, and then next minute they're back in the main town, being tortured again, or uh, including the girl. And you're just like, what? I've missed something here. What's happened? Is there a real missing or what? You know, this massive leap, and and it's it is trying. It it is very much trying to follow the same. Uh, template as Sleepy Hollow. It was very much trying to be that kind of film, uh, with a touch of legend 
you know the whole sort of building a, a forest within yeah. a studio and you know trying to make it this sort of fantasy land and then just uh, there's a lot of stuff thrown in i mean did the trees need need to move they just that made no sense that the trees moved yes yeah. um i mean they so they did the whole thing with um the huntsman's actually a wolf as well and and then of course the whole bit with the um you know doing the grim's fairy tale so you had um hansel and gretel with the whole um you know uh dropping breadcrumbs breadcrumbs little red riding hood i mean i have to say though the bit with the horse uh swallowing the girl whole was kind of freaky it was it was horrible that was freaky but the the bit with the tar monster that turns the little girl into the gingerbread man was just stupid it was, yeah. And, and that, just, that's where I, th- yeah. I thought some of the effects there looked a bit meh as yeah, well. I for mean, me. just, it just it, it made no sense to the story. I mean, why would she then, you know, you can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. No, you're not. You're a black tar thing. It yes. made no yeah. fucking sense. And, you know, there's these little jokes like Matt Damon's character's called Wilhelm, Wilhelm Grimm, as in Wilhelm Scream. Yeah. I mean, oh, right, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's just terrible. And it's just, you know, some of the actors are trying their best. I mean, you can, Matt Damon, Heath Ledger, they're, they're giving it their all. Um, trying to think of. Uh, so there's a different kind of Wilhelm Scrim in this, in this yeah, film then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to many others. <laughs> I mean, Peter Stormare is, he, he kind of grows on you. At first, he's, it's like, whoa, this is way too much. Tone it down a bit. But he, yeah. he does kind of grow on you. But his sort of, he's sort of because uh, you know he's like the the Jonathan Price's henchman, and then he has like a, a, a he sort of changes sides and becomes good and believing and all this stuff. And just doesn't it, his turn doesn't kind of make any sense. It just happens because it needs to be, and it's just yeah, it's just just a, it's just not a very good film i mean yeah i, I it's one of those things where it's kind of like i guess because he was coming off the back of the failure of um the man who shot uh, don quixote and he needed to do something and so this project came along and he thought i'll do this it's kind of me you know it sounds like something i would do and i think that was the problem is you know it's something that sounded like he should do it but obviously it wasn't it wasn't a, i don't think it was a very good fit i mean it's that kind of thing where they were trying as i say they were trying to do a tim burton they were trying to do a sleepy hollow but without any of that kind of blood or gore i mean there was no yes. real stakes in it at all yeah i mean it's not i didn't feel any time that the the, the girls that go missing were in any trouble yeah no, I, no, it, it didn't. It didn't uh, have a lot of tension like that for sure. And uh, obviously, you know, it attracted. It's, it's got some, you know, fairly big names in it. But uh, I think again, it's because a lot of them wanted to work with with Terry Gilliam. Um, and uh, it does feel like, in some respects, he just kind of went with the flow on this one, which might might be a bit of an unfair thing to say. But it it, it just does sort of feel like it's missing something and um 
uh yeah i I, you know i i just think i think the concept of this sounded amazing i just don't think that the uh the film we got at the end of it was quite lived up to that and i mean it had it had its moments i mean i think jonathan price was great in it (laughs) you know (laughs) well there's there's these what i think one of the problems is i think a lot of the problems comes back down to the scripts as well and studio interference but the script wise there's these leaps that happen that there, there, there doesn't seem to be any time. So, uh, so you, at, at the beginning, you see the Brothers Grimm do their con. And as an audience, we see it as a con. But then the French who are invading or who are occupying uh, arrest them and they know that they're con artists. And it's like, well, how do you know? How did these guys slip up apart from... Um, Heath Ledger's character sort of saying something derogatory about the French. I think it would. I it was one of these. When I think about it, it's a script that needed a couple more drafts. It felt like. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very fair comment. Yeah, yeah. What I think this story, how this story could have worked a lot better, is that. So they're con artists, and their legend builds, and you you know. As an audience, we know we know they're con artists, but they come to this village where this real, you know, supernatural thing is actually happening, and it's not because they're taken there by the French, because they're worried about some sort of um, uh, uprising from the forest. That they just they're asked there to come by the the village people, and and that way they find out about what's happening and. And then the threat about the French may come into it still, but it comes into it more naturally. And, you, you know, and you lose some of these characters who are just, you know, they're way, they're wicked, they're crazy, you know, take them out. Because they just, uh, it just makes the, it just makes the story just really weird. You know, it, it, it could have been a lot better than it was. And yes. it does, it, it and as much as you say it drags, it also it feels rushed as well. Yeah. You know, they don't naturally make their way there. I mean, if anything, if you, as a, as an audience members, we could have learnt that these guys were common at the same time as the village people did, not, you know, knowing this from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, as I say, it's trying to be a lot of other things as well, but it's also trying to be a Terry Gilliam film. <laughs> and and does, it feels like somebody else did it. Yeah, and it's also really pushing for that PG thirteen rating as well, isn't it? You know, um, l- l- like you said with the um, you know the whole Sleepy Hollow thing. In fact, it's quite interesting um, sort of comparison. Actually, is is uh, in terms of, of you know directors that we've spoken about, and and you know how some have visual style and whatever. I, I would indeed, you know pair sort of terry gilliam in the same sort of mantle as um tim burton in so much as you know you know that you're watching one of their films and uh but like you said on this one it's almost like because they couldn't quite go there with the with the darkness with the gore because let's be honest grim fairy tales are by their very nature incredibly dark and uh, it's like they couldn't quite go there with this film you know (laughs) it was like it was held back slightly you know (laughs) well i mean i watched uh uh 
in a company of wolves the other night and right. you know that's based around um you know little red riding hood even though it's in a weird way but that film yes. is even though it's just a film was like wow okay <laughs> that is what it is <laughs> it's a dream with stories within the dream <laughs> yeah it's a uh, classic like yes uh you know the brothers grim you know it there's been some great sort of horror tellings of the brothers grim story and you know trying to sort of do this thing where it's the you know it's the guys who the writers had you know been involved in their adventures that's i don't know it, it it doesn't i feel that doesn't work either you know yeah, yeah. Uh, is that is that weird thing of you know of putting the author into their own story and it's like well this is where it came from because they had this wonderful adventure where all these things all of these things happened at the yeah. same time yeah. not 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 once or a time or over a period of time it happened all at the same time and there's this led to such wonderful bits of you know of storytelling throughout the the years and it's just like no Okay, it's I a mean, bit contrived. Well, yeah. we, I mean, you don't go into this film thinking, "Oh, wow, that's how they came up with their stories." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I mean, yeah. I, you know, to be fair to this, I didn't find this as hard to watch as um, Fear and Loathing. Uh, you know, you know, I, I found I was a bit more engaged and uh, enjoyed it a bit more than that. But uh, y- y- you know, it, it definitely just it definitely felt like it wasn't quite it wasn't quite there it wasn't no. quite what it should have no. been and uh you know and obviously monica belushi helped immensely oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't wasn't lena headley doing anything for you oh well no absolutely lena's lena's good as well but uh you know you know it it, it was it was yeah it, it's 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 uh you know, it, the other thing that's interesting is apparently Matt Damon and Heath Ledger were originally cast the opposite way round. Oh, right, yes. They actually persuaded Terry Gilliam to to reverse the roles for them because mm. they 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 wanted to play, you know, slightly more against what their normal types would be or, or whatever. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't have I didn't have a massive problem with the casting, and and I think you know they they were fine. It was just the material just didn't seem quite up to par. You know, yeah, um, and this sort of uh, it sort of it's the film that kind of brings his sort of Hollywood sort of time to an end because after that uh, he became very independent with the, the next three films, which was Tideland, The Imaginarian of Dr. Parnassus, and The Zero Film, which have all been yes. films that he's made outside the Hollywood system. And um, and I think have been a lot more, a lot better than The, the Brothers Grimm. Now, I haven't seen Tideland because the subject matter did kind of turn me off it. I just, I, I, it's, it's like, mm, I, I, I think I will see it eventually, but right now it's just a film I just... It just feels a bit too icky, you know. Yeah, I must admit, I've not seen that either. So, yeah. um, but yeah. I, I did see the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, and I really enjoyed that. 
and it was it well, considering was, its massive production problems yeah <laughs> yes well yes it was the last film that Heath Ledger made and uh but it wasn't a test but wasn't it a testament to the actors who came in and took over the role and also how 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 it was the story was able to let him do that because of this the use of going through the mirror and going to this uh you know fantasy land where you know you could be anybody you wanted to be I mean it 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 worked out kind of well actually because if it wasn't for that, the the film would never have been finished, or would have had to been recast. And I don't think, because uh, you know Heath Ledger's performance in that film is really good. I mean, as as much as we talk about the Joker, his you know his portrayal of the Joker, I mean, he is really good in this as well. Yes, sort of, it's very yeah, no, well, I it's, agree. it's very well worth checking out, and also for the fact there's. Uh, the lead actress my feature actually has a line in it <laughs> in, the, in Dr. Oh, really? Parnassus okay. yeah yeah. Uh, she's like one of the uh, there's like a whole lot of like drunk people and she's like one of them she's sort of screaming about what are you doing here and get out of here or something like that it's been a while since I've seen it but um, oh right okay but I, I did get to I did get to see Zero Theorem recently and i love that you see i've not seen that yet is that good is it I, it's on my list to watch it's very good and um it's kind of it's sort of it's i would say it was uh like a you know it, it's akin to brazil it's 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 playing in that kind okay. of similar uh ballpark uh and um it's it's very good and i i really enjoyed it I think it was it was kind okay. of it was it was, right. it was definitely a uh, you know a good return to to what he does and uh, David Fulison is is wonderful. He is play he's playing one of those typical uh, Gilliam characters. You know, uh, you can see Jim Broadbent playing that kind of character. Uh-huh. But he's he's really good in it and uh, cool. And of course, uh, so is um, oh got my brain tonight. Uh, Christoph Waltz in the lead, really good. Right. It's such a different look for him because uh, he is totally shaved. His eyebrows are shaved, his head's shaved. So oh my a god! Yeah, okay. completely different look. And um, he he has a mannerism about him that takes a little while to get used to, but once you do, it's you know it it, it works really well. I yeah. Hey, he's it, Christoph Waltz. He can't do a lot wrong, but yeah, no, that's that's cool. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, you know, the other thing interesting with Gilliam, I mean, there's loads interesting. We, 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 we could literally talk for hours about this guy. But, you, you know, is uh, over the years, there's been the projects that he hasn't done, mm. you know, yeah. like, for example, Watchmen. Mm. He was attached yes. to for a, a very long time. And even the Harry Potter series, you, you know, initially, um you know, he had some involvement and was 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 going to do and didn't. So, uh, yeah, he's he is a very interesting guy and massively entertaining to see in any of his um, any of his interviews because uh, he's got that quite infectious laugh, hasn't he? <laughs> he is, and, so. and and the other thing as well is he uh, he doesn't hold back on anything. No, no, uh, he doesn't take any bullshit, does he? <laughs> no, but I mean his. Uh, there's a, a quite a, 
there's an interview with him talking about um, uh, Spielberg and Schindler's List, and he's kind of scathing about that film. Intra- okay, that's yeah. one. God, there's stuff it's, out there I haven't seen, is, and that's yeah, one of them. It was an okay. interview he did for TCM. It's if you look on YouTube, you, you'll find it. Okay. Loads of interviews with him. Yeah, there are because I've I've actually watched uh, a few in prep for some some of this as well. So, um, but there is a lot of material out there. Yeah, there's lots of. Uh, as we said earlier, further reading. <laughs> should, this pod, should this podcast not have covered every damn thing that you wanted it to, and you're saying, "Oh no, they didn't mention this." And yeah. Well, so, well yeah. Know. I mean, if if you go onto YouTube, you can uh, you can find the hamster factor. It's on there. So I saw it. Uh, oh right, again. it's, it's and, great. And, and Battle also, of Brazil. Battle of Brazil's on there, so you yeah. can find out what happened. Uh, with the release of uh, of Brazil over in the states and uh, the Love Conquers All uh, cut and stuff and uh, <laughs> yeah, there's uh, just loads of interviews with him from his appearances at film festivals and on TV and stuff. So it's a lot of material to to go through and you know see what he's, he has some very interesting thoughts about you know uh, cinema and other people's films and stuff and and then of course there's always the the Python films. He's always great in that. I, I mean, I always laugh at the bit in uh, Holy Grail when uh, they're being the animation where they're being chased by the monster, and then uh, the monster disappears because the artist has had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's all good. It's all good stuff, indeed. So, uh, yes, interesting. But, uh, but yeah, um, well. Yeah, the, 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 there's so much more we can say, but maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, I think I think that just brings us nicely to an end. We're at our um, we're at our feature length <laughs> mark, aren't we? So yes, we're we're nearly as long as Brazil is. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh we're going to end in our usual manner. So uh, Keith, where can we find your work? Okay, if you go to YouTube, we've mentioned that already on this podcast. Uh, yeah, go to YouTube and put in British Isles, E-Y-L-E-S. Um, you can see some some work that I've done there. And uh, you can check out my work at independentrunnings.com. And uh, there's uh, lots of videos on there of, of uh, you know, behind the scenes and uh, shorts I've made and other people's work. And it's, you know go on there it's it's a, it's a rabbit hole you go in there and be lost for hours okay. <laughs> uh you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher youtube again and all good podcast providers um please leave us a rating and review um on itunes or stitcher it all helps and um you can follow us on facebook and twitter just search movie heaven movie hell so, um, lots of interesting stuff coming up in the next few months. So, uh, I hope you can join us for that and, uh, join us next time for the next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. <laughs>